0: At the start of the summer, I left St. Columba's Hospice in tears. I had just been to visit Margot Clark. Margot had the incurable motor neuron disease and was nearing the end of her life. Now, if you had the joy of getting to know Margot in the four or so years that she was with us, you'll know how expressive and how lively she was in all of her interactions. You can't talk long with her without her face lighting up, her hands gesturing, her arms often held out for a hug. But there she was, her face and her speech slow with her depreciating function of all muscles and barely able to even lift a single hand. Now she said two things to me that day. And the first thing she said was, I don't know why this is happening to me. I don't know why this is happening to me. It was a statement, but of course, it was a question. Why is this happening to me? The long pause indicated that it was a question that I should answer. What would you say? What would you say in response to her question? Well, What do we say to people who are suffering and who are quite honestly and rightly trying to make sense of it? I mean, we have plenty of content. We've got the Bible. We've got plenty of comforters. We're a church family full of helpers. But do we have the heart and do we have the tact to say what we should say in the right way? I mean, I'm I'm sure we have all benefited from a timely word that kept us going in hard times. But I'm sure we have experienced some absolute clangers too. For some people can be quite careless. Oh, I'm really sorry for your loss. I know just how you feel. I remember that time when my cat was lost for eight or nine days. Oh, it was terrible. But we found him. I know just how you feel. Well, there's carelessness like that. But there's also bad theology. Paul Mallard, an FIC pastor down south and included this in his book Invest Your Suffering, great book to read, was told that his wife's disability was down to some sin in his own life. Now when Paul very patiently begged to differ, the man replied, oh, I could be wrong of course, maybe it's some sin in your wife's life. I'm sure it took every ounce of restraint in Paul Mallard to not inflict some suffering on that man's nose at that point but but it shows us, doesn't it? What do you say? What do you have to say to people who suffer? Look around you. Everybody's suffering. What are you going to say to each other? Are we going to be the kind of church family that are just kind of co-conspirators and superficial church family? No. What use is that to us in our souls and to the lost out there who need to see genuinely what the gospel does? To a church, to a community like us. Well, this is where we find this vast middle section of discussion in Job so helpful. And this is going to be bird's eye view all the way, okay? And we're going to, I've got three points to help us try and distill this down so that we know how to help each other in our suffering. And the first is this let's move towards each other in our suffering. Let's move towards each other in our suffering. This is, Job 2, 11 to 13. Now, the great thing that I I love reading that Job's friends actually act on his suffering. They've heard about what's happened to him. He's lost his wealth. The bailiffs might be at the door. You know, he's lost his health. He's scratching with something sharp. That's his only relief. He's lost all his kids in a day. It's unspeakable loss. That kind of suffering can certainly make people like us, very reluctant to get in touch. I wonder if you've ever heard of a friend suffering and felt worried about that, about getting in touch. You know, I don't know what I would say. Oh, I struggle to know if I would be able to hold it together myself. Maybe they won't want me to come. I might wait till they get in touch with me. I'm not sure how helpful all of that thinking is. We need each other. Suffering is hard enough, but suffering intensified by loneliness is worse, isn't it? Job's friends actually set a good example, at least at the very start. They go to him, they cry with him, and for a whole week, all they do is sit there with him. They don't say it, but they're basically saying by their presence, we're here for you, Job. We're mourning with you, Job. We feel for you. Now, there's a lesson in that both for the comforter and the sufferer. To the worried comforter, this passage says, Move toward your brother and sister in their suffering. Let it be true in Charlotte Chapel that no one suffers alone. No one. Mourn with those who mourn, actually, weep with those who weep. And let this be the rule. If you don't know what to say when you go to see someone, don't say anything. It's better. <laughs> the best thing job's friends did the worst thing they did really was open their mouths but we'll get to that and the lesson not only for the comforter but for the sufferer let your brothers and sisters help let them come alongside and serve you as messengers of god it's worth noting that job does not request privacy he doesn't turn his friends away he lets them come he lets them mourn he lets them cry it's by no means inappropriate he lets them speak even but i'm concerned that sometimes we deny brothers and sisters the opportunity to mourn with us and worse deny god deny god's help through the means of grace that is called the church family we're not just going to get better and get through it all by ourselves God will help me, you say, that's right. How? Through his people, speaking his words into your life. So privacy is fine, but our culture is making our idea, the Christian idea of privacy, much more private than it ought to be in church life. Think about that. So, move toward each other in your suffering. And in doing so, actually, you're following the example of Jesus. Didn't God, in love, move towards us when we were in our most horrifying predicament? Lost, teetering on the brink of hell, with no Savior. In Christ, God moved towards us in our suffering in order to rescue us from it. That's His incarnation. That's the cross. That's the point. He entered into our suffering in order to pull us out of it. Move towards each other and let others mourn with us and minister to us. That's the first thing. The second thing, let's help each other talk about suffering. Let's help each other talk openly and honestly about suffering. This is what chapter 3 is all about. Sometimes in our suffering, we're afraid to tell people how we really feel. We're actually afraid at times that if we say how we really feel, people will look down on us or think ill of us, thinking, well, I'm not sure Christians are supposed to talk this way. That's why I'm glad that Job 3 is in our Bible. It sits there in the company of the Psalms of lament, these songs sung surely in a minor key, of suffering without relief. It's not that they don't think the relief's gonna come. It's not that they think that God has somehow absolutely forgotten them. It's just that these songs give expression to the very feelings of their hearts. It's just so real and honest. Learn from Job. It's okay to talk honestly about your suffering. He does. Look at chapter 3. What does he say? In verses 3 to 10, it's effectively summarized by Job saying, I wish I had never even been born. I wish my mum had been barren. That's a, that's a big thing to say. Verses 11 to 19, in fact, I wish I had died in infancy. Then I wouldn't have had to go through this. He's got these ideas that, oh, maybe, maybe somehow I'd be at peace. Oh, well, no, you wouldn't. But it's okay to express that that's your thinking in that moment. Now, some ask, of course, what has changed? In Job 1 and 2, we're introduced to this kind of superhuman faith in the the face of everyone's worst nightmares. But Job now is an absolute mess. Is he losing his faith? No, of course he's not. As is often the case with those who suffer. The initial bracing of oneself against the brutal winds of suffering gives way to the experience of the pain that was initially unfelt. So we've heard stories, of course, of people who are on mountain hikes, breaking their ankle, trekking home for like three or four hours, only to collapse in pain at the end. Oh, now you won't walk to the hospital. No, initial pain-blocking adrenaline gave way to the excruciating agony that ought to be felt that is in keeping with the nature of the injury. And so it is with suffering. So it is with the pain that we feel, maybe not fully at first, but feel. Job is still mindful of God in this, though. He's not lost his faith. He's trying to figure it out. as verses, in, in verses 20 to 26 of chapter 3 show, verse 23 in particular, he's conscious that God is still there. He says that God is hedging him in. Now, in chapter 1, interestingly, the hedge of God was what kept suffering out. That's what Satan said. You put a hedge around him, that's why he's praising you, not cursing you. But then in chapter 3, the hedge is keeping Job in his suffering. And throughout this book, he's asking, why? Not out of fizzing rage, but out of absolute lament. Why? Why? I need some answers. Now, what does God think about Job's honest lament? I mean, if you heard him talk the way he talked in chapter 3, and it was your voice that was being put in instead of Eliphaz's in chapter 4, what would, what would we read? What would you be saying? Job's friends think he's out of line. Well, Job does repent at the end. At the end, though, God thinks that Job's wrangling lament is actually Okay. So we know this from chapter 42, verse 7. After the Lord had said these things to Job, he said to Eliphaz the Temanite, I'm angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. So in all that Job says in this book, whether he's expressing his faith at the start or honestly pouring out his heart in the middle, he's affirmed by God at the end. That's very, very, very important for understanding this book. Job isn't rebuked for what he said in chapter 3. Now, don't misunderstand me. I want to make it clear. You can overstep the mark in what you say to God or about God when you're trying to make sense of your suffering. Or why else would God have commended Job for not sinning in that way in chapters 1 and 2? In all these things, Job did not charge God with wrongdoing and sin with his mouth. Okay, so there is a way you can do that, but Job is not. So what should we do? What do we learn from this? Well, quite simply, speak honestly about your struggles. I wonder if you do. Are you a door tightly shut, struggling alone, or honest enough with a few good friends, or even just one to open up? Do we as a church create a culture that says it's okay to talk or it's not okay to talk? What do you think? Do you belong to the kind of small group where it's okay to talk or not okay to talk? What do you think? Talk about that next time your small group meets. I mean, what we say in small groups, even for an example, and what we say when we get together with friends, should create a culture where it's okay to talk honestly, it's okay to lament, it's okay to suffer out loud. Job 3 really is a reassuring invitation. To you who are afraid, it says share and talk honestly. No one's going to think bad of you. To those who pretend to be fine, it says just talk openly. Nobody thinks anyone's got it together anyway. And to those who just don't want to, share and talk. That's honestly, that's the invitation of here. Nobody will help if we co-create a culture where everybody's just fine. How's it going? Fine. (laughs) Fine not true i'm not okay you're not okay especially at various times i'm really not going to be okay and you're really not going to be okay but the point is god puts us together in a church family so we can help each other at the right time and also we need to learn to use lament lament is the expression of deep struggles that actually lead us to god Includes the things that we say to God in prayer, but it includes the kind of things that we sing together. And don't forget, Jesus again is our model and example. I'm in Garden of Gethsemane. He wasn't afraid to say to his disciples, this is Jesus we're talking about here. I am overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch over me. Now, what do you think foot-shaped mouth Peter might have said there or tempted to say, hang on a minute, deity doesn't talk like that. I think you need to repent. Wait, no. No, It's okay. Jesus talked openly about how he was feeling. Bleeding, uh, sweating, drops of blood in Gethsemane. His anxiety deeply, deeply felt, please stay here and keep watch with me. In other words, he's asking him to pray for him and with him. And then on the cross itself, when in the depths of despair, in the loneliest of lonely moments, he cries out publicly, my God, my God, why? Why have you forsaken me? It's okay to lament. So let's move towards each other in our suffering. Let's help each other talk about our suffering. Thirdly, let's speak God's word to each other carefully in our suffering. Really carefully, as we'll see from Job. When you read the back- and forth discussion that takes place between chapter four and chapter 37, that's what you learn as they answer Job's question, and Margot's question. Our question. Why? I don't know why this is happening to me. Now they do Job's friends do the first bit right. They speak God's word, but they do the second bit really badly. They're not careful with their Bible handling. A lot of what they say is actually very true. I I mentioned last week that I first read the book of Job when I was on summer mission in Rwanda. And I found that little Bible this week. And there are so many of those verses that that contain what Job's friends are saying that I have underlined. (laughs) And you can do that. Tick, that bit of theology is very correct. Tick, that bit's correct. Good, that bit's correct. These guys know something about God but they just suck at putting it all together, okay? It's truth misapplied. They're mistaken in the way they take these truths and read them to Job, and as a result, they only intensify poor Job's pain. So let me give you a quick fly-by-overview of the shape and content of the discussion and how it goes with this uh, uh, image on screen uh, there's the book ends of the book. Chapter 1 and 2 is what we looked at last week. Chapter 42 will be the conclusion. Besides this section where God is speaking, Job is all the yellow dots, and the gray dots are uh, Job's three friends. Elihu there is orange. And here's what we see. Chapters 1 and 2, the story unfolds. Chapter 3 is Job's lament. Then from chapters 4 to, four to, uh, to 22, you have these three cycles of debate. Each cycle goes Eliphaz, Job, Bildad, Job, Zophar, Job. So Job, each friend is contributing to the discussion, Job's feeding back. And as the conversation progresses, I hope you've seen as you've read it, the the tone intensifies. It's a bit more denigrating and unkind as it goes. Job's friends find Job's own defense of his innocence absolutely unbelievable. Job finds his friend's words painfully unhelpful the debate goes around one cycle and a second cycle Job keeps coming back at them so that you see there in that third cycle in the end Zophar just gives up the third guy he's just like I've got nothing to say and Job offers in verses 20, uh, chapters 27 to 31 some final protest of his innocence crucially crying out for a mediator I need somebody I need somebody to help me here. And then in 32 to 37, young Elihu pitches in with a rebuke, both for Job's friends and for Job himself. So let me give you a flavor of this. Okay, let's do the first cycle. Eliphaz goes first in chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. So Job's lament is what we've just looked at. Eliphaz, consider now who, being innocent, has ever perished? Were the upright ever destroyed as I have observed, those who plow evil and those who sow trouble reap it. Yeah, well, that sounds like Galatians 6, doesn't it? The apostle Paul wrote something like that. Okay, there's a tick. There's some good theology in there. But in other words, he's saying, Job, these kinds of things do not happen for no reason. You, you, Job, must have sinned in order to be punished like this. Therefore, Eliphaz is saying, okay, trouble and hardship equates to punishment. That's the only justifiable reason for it. Is it? Is it? That's his argument. Job says, nope, that's a summary. Bildad weighs in, not so carefully as Eliphaz in chapter 8, verses 2 and 4 says, how long will you say such things? When your children sinned against him, he gave them over to the penalty of their, their sin. My goodness, did you hear what he just said? He's like, okay, fine, fine, Job. If you're demanding your innocence and you've not sinned, Guess who did? Your kids. That's why you've buried them. Helpful? Job says, "Uh, nope. Zophar's turn in chapter 11, he says, look, Job, if you just put away the sin that's in your hands, then free of fault, you'll lift up your face. In other words, just admit it, Job. Everybody knows that you've got some dirty little secret, there's something you've done in the past, what is it? Just acknowledge it, it'll be fine. Job says, honestly, I've not done anything wrong. And what we see in cycle one is repeated in cycle two and three until in chapters 27 to 31, Job has this long, long speech insisting on his innocence. In chapters 29 to 31 especially, he says, look, neither women nor wealth have drawn my heart. He's remained steadfast in his faith and devoted to doing God's will. That's why he cries out crucially, crucially in chapter 31, verse 35, for vindication, saying, Oh, that I had someone to hear me. I sign now my defense. Here's my testimony. Let the Almighty answer me. Let my accuser put his indictment in writing. Okay, someone to hear him. Is that Elihu? Well, here he comes. He's, I mean, we need someone like Elihu because Job's friends are saying God is punishing Job, but they're wrong. And Job himself is getting really close to charging God with carelessness in his sovereignty, or even he's on the brink of charging God with being unjust, unrighteous. But Elihu's main contribution is this Job's pals, you're wrong. God permits suffering not always to punish. There are other categories for understanding why suffering comes. One of those categories is purification. It's holiness, not to punish, but with purpose to sanctify. Sounds good, okay? There are passages in the Bible that say that. Romans 5, 1 Peter 1, James 1. But Elihu also says, look, Job, you're also wrong because... Your own wondering about what's going on is no better than your friends. God isn't unjust. Don't even get anywhere near that line. Nor is he your enemy. He's not your accuser. He's your friend. But does that explain it all? Well, is is it like you drawing a line under the whole debate? Is he the final word on the matter? Sounds so close to the truth, doesn't it? Like I said, it sounds a bit like Romans 5. You know, suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character. Character, hope. And hope does not disappoint. Yes and amen. But as close as Elihu is, he's still speaking out of ignorance. He doesn't actually know. Because Job 1 and 2 tells us that God did not allow Job's suffering in order to strengthen or purify his faith. But to prove that God is worthy in the eyes of those who love him. It's to prove that Job does not worship God for nothing. But that he values him and treasures him for the God that he is. We've all See, carefully read your Bibles, friends. The answers in the text. Chapters 1 and 2. And in the end, of course, Elihu is helpful to some extent because, well, God does not rebuke him along with Job's friends, but neither is he congratulated. In fact, he's not mentioned at all by God. And that's the overview. Now, what is God teaching us in this? Way too many things to address in one sermon, but let me finish with two things. One about helping people who suffer, and one about God. First of all, sufferers. In helping sufferers, we need to make sure that our theology, our understanding of God, is thought through and our Bible handling careful. I've heard so many times people rip passages from God's word completely kicking and screaming out of context and forced into some kind of pad answer for suffering. I've been guilty of that in the past. But the mistake that Job's friends make here is not saying things that aren't true. Like I said earlier, it's about misapplying the truth. So Christopher Ash, in his commentary on Job says the friends hold essentially to this four-part understanding of God or theology, the study of God. One, God is in control. That's true. Two, God is just and fair. Three, God punishes the wicked and blesses the righteous. Four, if you suffer, you must have sinned. Now, all four of those things independently can be true, but care needs to be taken how you piece all those things together. God is in control. Number one, yes, absolutely. God is just and fair. Yes, unchangingly and unwaveringly so. Yes. Three, God punishes the wicked and blesses the righteous. Yes, He does. Wisdom books like Proverbs say that in life, this this is generally true. If you pursue an, a life of ill-gotten gain, if you walk in the ways of the wicked, what do you expect to reap? The consequences. So the reason why Moses didn't get to go into the promised land was because in his anger he disobeyed God. Or David reaped the consequences of his sin with Bathsheba and Uriah, her husband. That's true. But, 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 that is not all that the Bible says about that. Because the Bible talks plainly about how sometimes reward or punishment isn't meted out or delivered immediately. It's withheld until later. That's why we've got this thing called heaven. That's why we've got this thing called hell that we talk about. The Bible talks about it tons. Jesus talks about it more than any other subject. In fact, reward for righteousness and justice for the wicked is most often spoken of in relation to the end, meaning it's entirely plausible for someone, a believer, to suffer innocently something that is not, something that is not, I repeat, not tied specifically to some sinful thing they've done in their lives. So you can't say to someone, your appendicitis is down to your sinful anger, or your person's, or some person's uh, wealth is down to their wonderful giving. Well, if you say things like that, you sound more like the heretics on God TV, TBN, Revelation TV, and whatever other thing, TV programs, that I cannot in good conscience encourage you to watch. Throw a hammer at the telly, or just turn it off. That would be a lot cheaper. But it's it's called the prosperity gospel, and it's an abomination. And actually, it seeps in in lots of different places. And poor Job, look at the effects of it. His suffering was intensified by the blunderers who tried to soothe it with their sandy, abrasive theology. May God keep us from offering nearly true explanations for suffering. And may he have mercy on us if we've maligned him and mistreated his people by what we've said to them and theirs. It's good to repent. So how do we take care? Well, we read our Bibles We study them for ourselves. We try and model what Bible handling should look like every time we preach, though we get it wrong at times. If we want to run courses on Bible handling, we'd be delighted to do that. Ask questions in small group. Wrestle with the understanding of the Bible and its teachings together. These are all means of grace by which God helps us understand this is what the Bible says and these are the situations where we can rightly Speak it in love into one another's lives. The second thing. This whole section reminds us that God is God. We'll think about this a lot more in the next three sermons. But God is God. Despite the insinuations of the friends. Or the close to the bone things that job says the questions certainly that are raised is god unjust is he not all powerful i mean does is there a sense where these things happen because stuff just slips through his hands is it does he take his hand off the wheel are we puppets what god is god he is not unjust he allows things that are hard yes at times to discipline us but not all suffering is punishment or discipline He has clearly and helpfully explained. I'm repeating this a lot. I hope you understand. He has clearly and helpfully explained that suffering comes for other reasons. I mean, what did we read from Zophar? Consider now who being innocent has ever perished. Uh, Jesus. For one. The great big exclamation mark to you, brother or sister, if you think that all suffering... Is down to someone's particular sin. God is not capricious, careless, or an unstable moral monster. One thing is for sure, he loves us and is entirely consistent with his promises. You can trust him even when you can't seem to find him. So says his word. Do you remember Margot in the hospice? I only told you the first of the two things she said to me that day. The first was, I don't know why this is happening to me. The second was in response to something I said in reply. I replied, Margot, I, I don't know why this is happening to you. Suffering comes for all kinds of reasons. I would have left it there, but Margot being the the academic switched on woman that she was probed and she said I said well sickness and death are a result of the fall creation groans could be that some suffering is for a greater goods God says that it could be that some suffering is a punishment for sin it could be that but there's a category for innocent suffering there's mystery to it it could be that so I said Margot, I don't know why this is happening to you. All I know is that Jesus was really upfront about it. So that when suffering hits us, we don't give up on him. Instead, we trust him all the more. The one who in the loneliest moment of his suffering cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then after dying for our sins and for our salvation... Came through suffering, came back from it in order to tell us that he's the one that if we hide ourselves in him, he delivers us through it. Satan, sin, death, gone in eternity with him. Now, Margaret replied, Yes. Jesus is my rock. To say that out loud is true faith. To say it from a hospice bed is for that person proof that he is. And if you don't know him yet, Come to him. He said, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Help one another as we suffer. Move towards each other. Help each other talk about our suffering. And let's speak God's word to each other carefully in our suffering. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Take a moment in the quietness, please, to... Offer your own prayers in God's and his faithfulness.